0: Well hello and welcome to Polity Matters. My name is Ben Ratliff. I'm joined as always by Jared Nelson and Scott Edberg and this is our eighth episode in our series before the book. We've said it several times now. I don't need to remind you but just in case you're here for the first time we've been working our way through Thomas Witherow's The Apostolic Church and pretty much just treating it like a book club of sorts discussing the material that he presents and um seeing what bearing it has on our understanding of church government. Um, in the first chapter, uh, Witherow raised the question, uh, what is uh, the apostolic church? And, and his approach was with a, a whole separate question. Which of the three forms of church government prevalent throughout the world today? Is it the duty of a Christian to select and to support in order to answer this? Witherow goes to the apostolic church in the pages of scripture. And, and just as the moral law is laid out in principles, So also we see the polity of the church laid out in principles in the pages of scripture. So we don't have detailed instructions, but we have broad uh, principles to be applied. And these are the six that we've already looked at and that we'll begin evaluating today. The office bearers in the apostolic church were chosen by the people. The office of bishop and elder are identical. There was a plurality of elder in each church. Fourthly, ordination was the act of a plurality of elders or presbytery. Uh, There's a privilege of appeal to the assembly of elders and the power of government was exercised by uh, that assembly in their associate capacity. And lastly, the only head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this third chapter of his book, um, after presenting these again, Witherow writes, the most unlettered reader, if he be only unprejudiced and honest, cannot examine the passages of scripture we have specified and failed to see that these six great principles were all embodied in the government of the apostolic church. It always makes me feel warm and fuzzy when Thomas Witherow calls me the most unlettered reader, Uh, appreciate his candor and honesty, Uh, but he goes on to say whether they are embodied in those forms of ecclesiastical government at present existing in the world is another and a very important question. So uh, these six principles were in the apostolic church and we need to decide if they're in any church that exists today. And the three that he gave us in the beginning uh, of the whole book were the prelacy, the independency, and the presbytery. And we're going to work through those um, three, uh, one at a time. So Jared's going to take us through prelacy. Uh, Scott will jump in for independency and I'll come back at presbytery towards the end. And then we'll have some discussions in between each of these um, gentlemen, let's get going. Jared, why don't you kick us off with the, the first section?
1: Yeah. The first form of government that he's going to tackle is prelacy, which is, um, I think we know it by a term of Episcopal government uh, ruled by a bishop. And he points out that this is what we see in the Church of Rome, uh, as well as the Church of England, and this uh, this form of government. We, we can probably cite some other ones, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, there's forms of this in uh, the Episcopal Church, in uh, the United Methodist Church. Um, so there's a lot more uh, examples that he, he could go into, but that's what he's dealing with in Northern Ireland. Uh, at that point. Um, And to remind people of prelacy or Episcopal government, it's this idea of um, this rule of an area really would be under this bishop who then each of the churches has just one priest or vicar or minister uh, that is appointed there. And so that priest or vicar, he's over that church, and then a bishop is over a group of churches. And then you might have other layers of there's an archbishop that's over them. Uh, In the Roman Catholic version, there's also cardinals and then uh, the pope. And so you have all of these different um, uh, forms of it, but it it usually is just rule by bishop or a single person in a church and in uh, an area. And so he's going to go through and look at these six principles and say, is this, do we see these apostolic principles here or not? So beginning with the first one, um, what about officers chosen by the people? Uh, within an Episcopal form of government, this is not typically what you're going to have. You're going to have the, the priest appointed there. Um, I don't know if you ever have discussions with uh, people in other churches they'll sometimes not know what Presbyterians do and say, so do you have a circuit or do you are you appointed by uh, somebody there? They don't realize the congregation is electing you because if they're from an Episcopal form of government, the bishop decides, here, you have that church, you have that church. Um, that's who is appointing uh, who is in those particular churches. And then whoever's above them is appointing who the bishops are, and those are appointing who uh, others are. Um, so this first principle he says Episcopal form of government fails pretty, uh, pretty simply. Uh, he doesn't take very long with it. You know, basically, a paragraph and he's done. Um, they don't they don't measure up to that. Um, the second uh, principle would be if the bishop equals the elder, which in the very definition of the form of government it fails on that because a bishop um, is a presbyter, but not every presbyter is a bishop. Um, so on the third one, uh, looking at that one, there's a is there a plurality of elders in each church? And he notes that there could be more than one person that's there that's assigned there. But uh, basically the rule is you have one vicar, you have one priest or um, uh, presbyter that's assigned to each church. And so you don't have a multiplicity of of elders Um, in modern forms of government. You might have some people that are helping with them, but they're really not um, uh, having a a role of uh, of ruling Uh, in the fourth principle. Uh, ordination by plurality. Uh, typically, this is done just by a bishop. I had a friend that went into the Episcopal Church, a Reformed Episcopal Church, and invited me to his ordination service, and it was just the, the bishop that was ordaining him. Um, so there's just one person that's involved there. Um, the fifth being the privilege of appeal. Um, he He says this really doesn't exist in his mind in the Church of England because you're not really having this appeal to people in the church, but to the queen's privy council. Um, And so he says this doesn't really count as a, as a form of appeal um, to to have your case heard or, and it's not heard by people that are uh, duly um, elected people within the church. So he, he rules that out. And then the sixth one with uh, whether uh, Christ is recognized as the head of the church, he says they fail in this one because in the church of Rome, that is said to be the bishop of Rome, that is the pope. And in the Church of England, that's said to be the king or the queen, whatever the monarch is, that just gets it because they happen to be the firstborn of the last king or queen. Um, And so they fail in that regard. And so his conclusion at the end of that is uh, Episcopal form of government fails in all six of those principles.
0: (laughs) Oh, read the line. We, are, we feel bound to declare our conviction that the government of the Church of England is repugnant to the word of God. I'm just quoting Witherow, all right? Send all emails to Jared. I,
2: I find it interesting that he <clears throat> essentially comes down with saying that this is the worst <clears throat> form of government of the three. Um, it is the least biblical <laughs> in, in many regards, according to Witherow, uh,
1: than congregationalism and presbyterianism i wonder if some of that's influenced by his context that was his frustration was the church of england and that competition that was there and um my critique i think a little bit to some of what he has here is if this applies to all different forms of episcopal government or just particularly to the church of england i don't know what you guys thought before i give my opinion i i found i found point six to be the most
2: interesting when thinking about the um Episcopal government, as it relates to who's the head of the church, um, I'd never really even thought about the king or queen claiming that that right in any regard. Um, do do they? Would they say that they hold that as a head of the church, or or is that just a projection from witherof?
1: Yeah, it originally was Tyndale that wrote uh, a treatise on that that was given to the king by his second wife that he loved, and so um, uh, partly because it said that he could declare whether or not he was uh, eligible for remarriage or not. Um, So this actually was a position that was put forward by some Protestants, and I think they were mimicking some of the ideas from the Eastern Orthodox at the time. So it's a feature, not a bug. Well, I guess my, my pushback on that would be, what about churches that are Episcopal but are not the Church of England? because this can be organized in different ways. I think of uh, some of our brothers in the ACNA, uh, they will say they're Anglican, they're Episcopal, but they don't have a Queen's Privy Council. Uh, they don't have uh, the same structures that are built uh, into it. And so, um, as I'm looking through this, you know, in terms of a privilege of appeal, um, there is something of an appeal in some Episcopal forms of government, and that you have a problem with uh, the priest or the minister, you can appeal to the bishop and there might even be a group of bishops that will decide on a question so there, there does seem to be some appeal that happens um even to a group that is uh, looking at it so i think five maybe it's a 0.5 maybe it's a um sometimes uh is not there but sometimes is um and i don't know every every episcopal form of government church if they might have multiple people involved with uh, an ordination service and In fact, when you look at independency, often they don't have a formal idea of ordination depending on the church. And so you might have ordination existing better in an Episcopal church than you would in an independent church. So at least for me, four and five, I would at least give half credit. And so uh, I don't think whether or has them fail completely, I I would give them more anywhere between one and two points out of six. I'm a generous grader.
2: Well, I mean, and and, and perhaps a you know, point five also for number three in some regards. The I mean there is like a co-conciliar kind of movement that has some some ability to have a plurality of decision making. Um you think that in the Roman Catholic Church, I mean, you choose the arch you know, the, the supreme pope uh, uh, by uh, a plurality of priests and, and so it's not like wholly lost of an idea even with that one. Um, Though I I do understand his point well and and agree, there there is and it's it's not as perhaps clean cut in some of these areas when you think about it.
0: I'm genuinely concerned of how much you all know about prelacy based churches. It's concerning to me. I know we're supposed to know know a little too much or too little. No, you know too much, much more than I do. Um, i'm sure even our unlettered listeners are concerned because you're about, from the about, south yeah. that's why <laughs> there's
2: no there's no such thing as prelacy in the south
0: it's true baptist all the way baby yep.
2: you, know, you should have probably did the baptist one
0: well speaking of which unless there's more to say about prelacy
2: no uh so the the second one uh that uh witherow goes over is independency and this is we would commonly uh, attribute to congregationalism. And so um, he's talking about, I guess, perhaps Baptists and non-denominational. Perhaps in his mind would be more the Puritans um, at this point um, who rejected both Presbyterianism, um, formal government, as well as um, the Church of England's Episcopal formal government. And so he he um, is uh, somewhat more favorable to this system of government than the last. If there were zero out of six in in uh, episcopal, uh, three out of six, he says, are present uh, within three of the six principles are present in Congregationalism. Um, and that that being the first one, uh, the principle of officers being chosen by the people. There is nothing more congregational than the congregation itself in many regards. And so the congregation does choose their officers, uh, whereas in the Episcopal government or even in Methodism where you're sent uh, a bishop or a priest, uh, not so in congregationalism. You choose those who will rule over you. Uh, The second point, uh, when dealing with the office of elder and bishop, uh, congregationalism is pretty unified on that as well. Um, They would believe that they are the same office. Uh, They are interchangeable and identical. And so uh, Witherow has no issues uh, when thinking about the independency of churches as it relates to both uh, the identical nature of office, but also um, the ones who call those to serve. Uh, He starts to get into some issues when you get to principle three on the plurality of elders in the church. Given the nature of how Witherow talks about the plurality being um, with uh, presbyters and presbyteries, that is obviously not found in a congregational system. Um, Congregationalism is known for its autonomy, where churches are independent um, in many regards from one another. And so he would argue that uh, the independent system here fails. I think that's what uh, he says uh, directly, that there is no plurality of elders. And we see this perhaps in uh, Southern Baptist circles where there is one elder and the rest are deacons at the church. There are, there's only one, Uh, maybe two if you ordain another guy, Um, but there's no plurality of eldership. Um, Some Uh, Baptists are better than others uh, in this regard, but uh, that's where he stands on three. On the fourth principle, uh, as it relates to um, the ordination, uh, he, I think, really helpfully outlines how um, independency fails with the task of ordination um, in that because they are independent, there is no ordaining body um, outside of the local church. Um, and often discounting ordination. Um, And I think that that's right, uh, that there is a failure in an independent congregation to rightly understand ordination and often viewing it as perhaps even a non-essential in many regards. Uh, And then the fifth point, um, the appeal to the Assembly of Elders. Obviously, there is no uh, substantial appeal, at least not how we would understand it within congregationalism. There are some sorts of appeals, perhaps, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, we saw that with Saddleback Church when they were ejected from the SBC. They appealed in some capacity, though it perhaps doesn't look like how we would understand it. Uh, and then uh, the last point, uh, he he does say that independents do understand the headship of Christ. And he says, we are happy to say and acknowledge this principle. They They are happy to say and acknowledge this principle in all its integrity. And so three of the six, that's how he kind of outlines it um, as relates to the six principles that he has established.
1: Okay, I have more problems with the way that he does this, probably just because um, there are there is as many forms of congregational government as there are congregational churches, it feels like. So some of these could be true in some and not in another, like the second one, in terms of... Um, there not being a difference between a bishop and elder but functionally there could be if you have a senior pastor that is just what he says goes or he was the planter and so he's the visionary you know you think of some of the report reports of some churches that will have some um uh, crazy um uh, happenings that just whatever the the pastor says goes you think of the whole series that was done on mark driscoll's church and it it seemed like there was not accountability there and functionally he was a bishop it seems like right um, so, yes, they could say that, but functionally is is true, is too actually true, uh, which also goes to to number three, which is a plurality of elders. I spent a good deal of time in Bible churches that many of them come from uh, a seminary that will remain nameless in Dallas, uh, uh, Texas. Reform seminary, right? <laughs> but it was started by Presbyterians. And so their conviction was a plurality of elders. And so you'll see a bunch of Bible churches today that have a plurality of elders of of lay or ruling elders they'll call them. And uh, so sometimes this is, this actually is there um, whereas before it was not as much the case I talked to Mark Dever who argues for a plurality of, rep, of elders mm-hmm. uh, within uh, the, his Baptist mm-hmm. uh, background. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, I didn't know what you guys thought of uh, two and three. One I think um, may actually not be there sometimes, and the other one may be there sometimes.
0: I think you have a fair point, and it it kind of goes along with what um, what he says at the beginning of the whole section, right? It's difficult to ascertain the particulars of ecclesiastical order approved by independence inasmuch as as we're not aware that they have embodied their views of what the Scripture teach on the subject in any common formula. Like, we see it go, right? And certainly things have broadened as time has passed since Witherow wrote.
2: There may have been more uniformity just generally within even congregationalism a couple hundred years ago. Um, they didn't have the first or second Great Awakening, and especially the second with some of the fallout that came there. And so perhaps there there was likely, I would assume, more uniformity within congregational worship uh, as well as perhaps government at that time. And so... Um, obviously there are offshoots, you know, the Anabaptists and all that. Um, But that's kind of what I was thinking. They probably didn't have as much fragmentation at that time as we have perhaps today, because we fragment and continue to fragment. So
0: here, I've been waiting to bring this up for the last many episodes. Um, I'm curious about y'all's evaluation of this. There's, I know of a certain Baptist church that is traditionally, Southern Baptist, no elders, um, just, just deacons <clears throat> with a pastor, sometimes other pastors on staff, they decided to start moving in the direction of getting elders established in their, um, polity. And so they, they had the congregation vote to change their rules, right? They're there. I forget what they have. They've got a covenant or something that they signed. So they changed it to, to risk, to have lay elders in place and a board of elders to be the, the primary, uh, governing body of the church and as soon as they uh, the congregation voted in favor of that then the pastors of the church appointed the lay elders to their positions on that board of elders y'all see the irony and i'm curious what what form of government are they actually practicing because there seem to be elements of both or at least desires for elements of both but all three are present
1: yeah they, they lost one of their elements do they have multi campuses?
0: No,
2: because then they're just Episcopal.
0: Well, I mean, I we know <laughs> I know of folks who have left this particular church over the, the matter of the the appointment of the new elders instead of the mm. popular election, election of the new elders, which is a, a you know I, I would have left over that I think. Um, anyway, just yeah, even a congregationalist
1: thoughts. church can can lose the first one, which is the the election by the people, mm-hmm. and so. Um, it's almost like you have to look at the bylaws of each congregational church to say how many of these do they fulfill, and they might fill a little bit more than three or they might feel like none of the three.
0: It'd be interesting to see what Witherow would think about our day and age where we have we we don't have three distinct forms of church government, especially in our country. Um, you know this middle one independency could be split into I mean, maybe maybe six different ones. How many combinations of six principles can you get, and that would be as many forms of government that could fit into this category?
2: Yeah, I think the issue in our own day is that church government, as we've talked about in the past, is an opinion, not an established truth or fact. And so when there is no principle guiding your ecclesiology and your polity, you can merge whatever you like about any of them together. And you take a little from this and take a little from that, and this is how we live now. And so there. There's there's a lot of that I think uh, in the American system. Um, I mean, in Southern Baptist Convention, you could get thrown out, and you can appeal that. I mean, that's that's emerging in some regards, and so it, it you choose what you want, and that preference side of it is pretty powerful in our
0: our country. Well, at this point in um in this series, it seems almost needless to go through this last this this next section, but um. He's going to apply the principles to the Presbyterian system of government. Mm -hmm. Um, He starts off by telling us that the term Presbyterian is derived from the word Presbytery because the leading characteristic of this form of church government is that it entrusts the duty of ruling the church to the Presbytery. uh, That is to the the elders of the church in their assembled capacity. And so he sort of starts to give away his opinion here at the beginning, uh, but he works through these six principles the same way he did with the other two the first showing us that the officers are chosen by the people. Uh, this is the way it works in Presbyterian churches. The people vote um, and elect men. Uh, he, he notes a couple of exceptions in history um, and, and points out that sometimes even a good system can be abused uh, because of sin and, um, and corruption, but that the general principle in the Presbyterian church is to elect elders um, by popular vote of the people. Secondly, he points out that um. That that the bishop and elder are the same in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, he has a good line here that's helpful. Every elder is a bishop or overseer of the flock, and every bishop is an elder, one whose office is to rule the house of God. Yeah. Number three, he proceeds to show us that there's uh, also a plurality of these elders in each church, and he goes into an, an extended discussion about the difference between teaching and ruling elders. Uh, we're not going to get into that uh, today, unless unless the gentlemen, my, my companions, want to get back into it. But I'll, I'll refer you at least here back to our discussion of elders with Fred Greco. There's two episodes um, back when we were going to the book. And um, you could also go back to our discussion with Johnny Gibson at the beginning of this series, because Witherow has a particular point that he, he's, uh, he sees ruling elders as being able to administer the same um, matters that teaching elders can. So he would see them able to administer the sacraments just like the teaching elders. Um, but again, plurality of elders in each congregation. Fourthly, he points out to us that ordination is by a plurality, uh, by the laying on of hands of the Presbytery. Uh, fifthly, we see that uh, there is the privilege of appeal. This might be one of the things that uh, you hear about most in the news related to the PCA as you hear about cases that have gone up to Presbytery or the standing judicial commission of the general assembly. Um, we have, we have courts that, that refer upwards to each other and uh, determinations and judgments that can come down after appeal has been made. It's a characteristic of our polity that is uh, significant and well-known. And sixthly, lastly, uh, I'll refer you back again to a previous episode of our show. Uh, when we talked about the first part of the BCO preface, now, we stated at the very beginning that Jesus Christ is the king and head of the church, and this is not negotiable. In any way at all. And so he gets to the end of this section, and like he does in the others, makes these summarizing statements. We know no other denomination in the world of whose form of ecclesiastical government the same statement could be made without departure from the truth that we are the apostolic church based on these principles. Um, anything to say here about his arguments, uh, his, his application, rather, evaluation of these principles in relationship to Presbyterians, guys?
2: Jared, does the presbyterian church in america have all six of these principles
1: i think that's worth asking of anybody that is in a presbyterian church how well they're doing on those six marks because i think that's an issue that you get into that like the the origin of the ARP was because the church of scotland was having um patrons choose ministers rather than election so even though they were presbyterian they they lost one of those principles and I think that's it's a reminder for us that it's not just having these six to say, "Isn't it great how we're right?" But how are we doing with these six? And I think that's why, like, the question of assistant pastors comes up is is this is this being played out in churches? Do we need to, to shore up that distinctive um, appeal? Make sure people know how to appeal and can appeal. It's great if appeal is there, but if you don't know how to do it, that's a problem. Um, and that we don't change our church government so that we have functional bishops. You know, I I think of uh, uh, I had a friend um, once that was talking about the PCUSA, and he started talking about you know our executive presbyter in their presbytery. And I was like, do you mean like a bishop? <laughs> and some of the things he described seemed to to undermine this idea of a plurality of elders. And you almost had a bishop there. So um, all of these things may be present, but you have to preserve it. It's almost like. A, to, to uh, steal and change a, a quote, you know, an apostolic church, if you can keep it. When he
0: makes that point, at, I forget which which principle he was talking about, that sin, I mean, is present still in the church, right? And so even if we have the right principles, our application of them um, may waver, uh, may, may see some stains. But um, I think your point is, is well taken, that not just to have the principles, but to be asking the question of them uh, constantly. We do have a bishop in Utah I don't know if that makes the PC any less Presbyterian or not. But.
2: Yeah, yeah, that guy—that guy's way too much power. Someone should rein him in. That's crazy, absolutely crazy. I was actually hoping that um, Jared would go the path of assistant pastors again, uh, and ta- you know, just we're just going to keep beating dead horses uh, on polity matters, and so we can't uphold principle number one because we have assistants, right?
1: But that's why <laughs> when <Right>? you know. <laughs> Have all of us been assistants? I mean, we've all been there before. We have. We have. <laughs> well, Isn't Ben still an assistant? I'm an
0: associate. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was a solo pastor before this and an assistant pastor before that. Played played the whole field. Which is the best position? It's a good sports ball reference, right, fellas? Um, it was a good sports ball. I've really enjoyed being an associate with uh, regular preaching duties. It's been good. So he's got one more section in the chapter where he it feels like a victory lap uh, at least at the beginning, but we'll work through some of these things. If anything stood out to you guys in this last, sec- last section, uh, bring it up. But he he, he uh, reminds us of the axiom that he began with and takes it in, and turns it into a final statement um, of his evaluation. And this is what he says. Our conclusion is that while the prelacy of Rome and England is in direct opposition to the form of ecclesiastical government that was sanctioned by inspired men. And while independency approaches much more nearly, but still falls short of the primitive model the presbyterian is in point of government the only apostolic church i guess first of all curious is that a true statement is the presbyterian church in uh, bearing in mind in point of government the only apostolic church
2: <laughs> we got the keys of the kingdom baby uh, okay.
1: of the three as apostolic churches defined as that which most closely resembles the principles in scripture I think you have to say that's true. Yeah.
0: Here, let me let me throw uh, something in here. What what about an independent Presbyterian church? So, you know, he's he's got these three, and 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 by his claim, one doesn't meet any of the six, one meets half of the six, and one meets all of the six. Maybe you'd argue an independent Presbyterian church meets five of the six, right? They don't. Then maybe there's not a privilege of appeal, and I know they try to work it out somehow in their structure that you have an appeal to certain. Um, you know committees or whatever they may be but uh is that presbyterian church not apostolic well it's not presbyterian in government Mm. i'm just Um, just trying to throw different things out there that people may think of
1: i I wonder uh, i think witherow tips his hand in another question here of if you were in a a town and they only had an episcopal form of government church and a congregationalist form of government church which one would you go to
0: house church (laughs) (laughs)
2: You know, I'd probably go to the Anglican church.
0: You know, you'd, you'd want that, you'd want that congregational church to have some doctrinal standards and some statement of their, their form of government to, in order to make that decision to some degree, um, which I suppose is, is one of yeah, the faults I guess of, I of could, kind of church.
2: I guess I was thinking more Baptist in regards to independency. If we're talking more about like Puritan congregationalism, I could probably be okay with that. I would probably go to that church. But if we're talking about like the SBC or the ACNA, I'd probably end up in the ACNA.
0: A hard transition to make from what he's saying to where we are in time. And it really hasn't been that long. Is yeah. kind of the strange thing. Um, but he was certainly dealing with a different kind of congregationalists than we are. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. He does make a good point, I thought. And, I, you know, I, I've never heard this stated outrightly before. He says an elder doesn't sit on a church court to represent the laity. But um, this is on 138. But he says down at the end, elders sit in their own right as spiritual rulers in the house of God, that we, we are elected by popular vote, but we're not there to represent the opinion of the people, so to speak, but that we're there to rule according to scripture and according to the, the direction that God leads by his word. Um, I've, I've heard, I don't know what you guys think. Here, There's a whole other question, I guess. Uh, you know, if you're elected to a committee of general assembly by your presbytery, are you there representing the presbytery? and and where the Presbytery might go? Or are you there, as he would say, in your own right as a spiritual ruler in the house of God? I've had people ask me this before.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've seen it happen at Presbytery. There's there's one vote that we had on an overture um, a few years back, and the elder voted against it, and I thought that he would be for it. Uh, and I asked why he voted against it, and he said, I didn't have really much of a strong opinion, and but all my elders did and they weren't able to be here um and and so this was in a presbytery level not ga Uh, and so i thought that was perhaps you know thinking through wisdom um it'd be hard to vote against your conscience i would think uh, to bind your conscience if you're if you have a strong opinion Uh, but i think perhaps it's permissible in situations where it's not a biblical principle perhaps at stake and your elders have a strong preference towards one i think it's worth considering that and perhaps voting in light of that
1: it's probably whether you think of yourself as a delegate or commissioner to general assembly and perhaps the presbytery should think of that i remember watching an overtures committee once where somebody from the presbytery got up and spoke against their own overture that they sent up that year and you think like maybe that presbytery should have sent somebody else to positively represent that um, so that's probably something that the presbytery has to think about, especially for particular matters that they're going to bring up, whether um, they want somebody just acting as a commissioner because it's not particularly pertaining to that presbytery or if you're kind of like, hey, you're a delegate for us and we're, we're sending you because we think you can defend this.
2: Well, how about for other like agencies or not agencies, but like committees? Um, I mean, it would seem hard to consolidate like overtures is one example, but you have like nominations you know if your presbytery sends a guy up i mean it'd be an awkward position not to go to bat for your own guy um it'd be awkward yeah let's not get that guy on um it seems like you would represent the presbytery in that kind of setting i would think i I don't know
0: yeah i don't know did you just did you just reach for something no i thought okay Jared had some authoritative text. Maybe he was going to grab and
2: Yeah. About how he had to, I
1: mean, he's the nomcom com chairman, right? I think it depends on the person. I usually try not to speak against anybody that's nominated from our presbytery. Um, so if it's somebody that I think needs to have a good word said about them, um, that people haven't considered, that's a thought. Though I don't think you're required to make a impassioned speech from everybody that you're, presbytery nominates especially if you're a presbytery that nominates somebody for like every single position and there are
0: those certainly the other thing that witherow does in this chapter towards the end is he he kind of takes a stand on um i suppose what he he actually calls it the disparity between ruling and teaching elders um it's just you know and i, I hadn't thought about it i remember now johnny was talking to us about this about this stance that that witherow takes Uh, He he says there's very much to be lamented and ought as much as possible to be removed the disparity between teaching and ruling elders. Um, I I do appreciate while while I I don't because I subscribe to our polity as we have in our book, I personally am comfortable with where our ruling and teaching elders are in terms of uh, a teaching elder, administering the sacraments and a ruling elder, not, but I do appreciate the thought generally that he, he encourages us to, to, to elevate the ruling elder uh, just in general, you know, and, you know, we've seen this happen in our own denomination lately, right. With um, like more in the PCA coming about, right. More Orthodox ruling elders and their work to get ruling elders, a general assembly and to get ruling elders to Presbytery. Certainly this is a need um, that we can't operate without them. And it, and it, it upholds that, uh, that third principle, right. The plurality of the elders in the church But just wondering if you guys had thoughts on his arguments here or if it was worth discussing apart from what we've already said with Fred on the chapter regarding elders.
1: It seems a bit of another topic and maybe why I like to think about Hodge and Thornwell and their debates because they had some really interesting debates on the necessity or the non-necessity of ruling elders to Presbytery.
0: If we were like, who is it? Um, One of the Presbycast guys just wants to take votes away from the teaching elders altogether, right? Temporary suspension. Must be Resby. Isn't
2: that guy? Isn't 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 he also in the OPC? Ironically, I think that's true. It's like a a good irony since the OPC would value ruling elders less, I would think, on average, because of the Hodge connection.
0: I think Resby just blames any trouble we've had in the PCA on teaching elders. Ah, I don't know if I would disagree with him, but you want to elaborate on that? But nobody's asked me, so <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> I want you to elaborate. <laughs> Who,
2: who are the problems?
0: <laughs> what are their names? Well, th- I what can, I can names? tell you three problems and they're on my screen at the moment. So, <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, well, um, um, y'all have anything else to add here? We'll come back one more time to uh, look at the final chapter of the book, but uh, he's, he's made his point now. Well, as uh, as the King of England would say, this podcast is over. Thank you for joining us. Uh, be sure to come back next time when we do finish out the Apostolic Church and consider the, the final chapter of Practical Lessons. If you're interested in learning more about anything that we've uh, mentioned, check out the show notes in your podcast player, or you can go to politymatters.org. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter or Facebook at Polity Matters, and be sure to subscribe in your podcast app of choice. If you've got questions or comments, you can reach out to us on social media. You can also contact us at politymattersfeedback at gmail.com. And believe it or not, a couple of people have done that. Uh, And we we do respond to emails. Uh, If you need us, we're all on Twitter. Links are in our show notes. Thanks again for spending time with us. Until next time, say goodbye, gentlemen. Bye, gentlemen. Catch you on the flip side. Y'all take care.